You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special podcast series we're doing on the book of Revelation, calling it The Catholic Apocalypse. And today we look at the seven chalices of vengeance, the seven plagues that are poured out on the world by seven angels, looking at Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Let's get started. Howdy, and welcome to The Taylor Marshall Show. This is the podcast for everyone who wants to create daily habits and learn enough theology to take their faith to the next level. And today we look at the seven chalices that seven angels pour out on the world, and we see how they relate to the Old Testament. Well, good morning. Good afternoon and good evening to wherever you are in the world. Thank you for tuning back into the Taylor Marshall Show for this series on the book of Revelation. Now, last week, when we looked at chapter 14, we saw the Lamb of God, who was Jesus Christ, surrounded by his army of 144,000 virginal, pure men. And we talked about what that means. And then we saw that there were three angels, a triad of angels, that came and gave warnings. And then we saw the appearance of the Son of Man from the book of Daniel, who is Jesus Christ, and then three more angels with the imagery of a harvest and the sickles. We always associate the sickle with the grim reaper. Here we see it with Christ himself. Christ is holding the sickle, and then another angel comes with the sickle, and they reap the harvest of grapes there in Jerusalem. And the next image is that of blood filling the entire Holy Land. I looked at some of the the numbers there and the symbolism and and how that um, relates to the geography and the space of the Holy Land. But this week, we see that now that the blood is flowing, now that the harvest has been reaped, chalices are being filled. And these chalices are going to be poured out on the earth. And their chalices are not necessarily going to bring positive blessings, but instead judgment. I want to say just a little bit about the sacramental role of the chalice and the sacramental role of the Eucharistic cup. St. Paul teaches us when he's talking to the Corinthians about how when we eat or drink unworthily the Eucharist, we eat or drink condemnation upon ourselves. However, if we eat or drink the Eucharist in a state of grace, that means we've been baptized, if we've committed mortal sins, we've gone to confession, our hearts are full of faith in Christ, hope in Christ, love for Christ, sacramental grace, the Holy Trinity is within us. When we're in a state of grace like that and we receive the Eucharist and we drink from the chalice of blessing, our souls are flooded with blessings, love, gifts, everything. However, St. Paul teaches us if we're not in a state of grace, if we're judgmental, if we're Pharisees, if our heart is full of hatred, if we have committed mortal sins, if we don't have the true faith, if we don't have hope in Christ, if we don't love God, if we don't love his Christ, then when we drink the chalice of the Eucharist or we receive the body of Christ, Instead, we drink condemnation upon ourselves. So sacraments are always a double-edged sword. On one side, it can bring great blessing. On the other side, it brings 
condemnation. And that's because the sacraments are given to us by Christ to lead us to him or to further condemn us. Now, that might be a little shocking to you, but it's true. Now, St. Paul also teaches that whenever we are condemned or whenever we are punished or chastised, Christ does that in order to bring us back to himself. It's maybe counterintuitive to the way you think, but every single time something bad or hurtful happens to you, Christ is going to use that through his graces to draw you closer to his sacred heart. That's how the divine economy works. And this is why St. Paul also says, you know, there's excommunication in the church. People are excommunicated. They are pushed away from the blessings of God so that they will in turn run towards the blessing of God and seek reconciliation. Now, with all that being said, that's kind of a, a biblical Pauline understanding of the Eucharist and of the body and blood of Christ. We see this now happening in the Apocalypse, in the book of Revelation. We've identified the great city as Jerusalem. She's been warned. Angels have called out. Prophets, preachers have called out to her. She did not heed them. She rejected Christ. And so Christ appears on the clouds with the sickle, and he and the second set of angels in chapter 14 plunge their sickle into Jerusalem and start the harvest. Now our attention changes from the earthly Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem, to heaven. The earthly Jerusalem has a temple in it, which is going to be destroyed by God. The heavenly Jerusalem has a temple in it, which is the resurrected body of Christ, which includes also all of his saints, all of his elect. And so in chapter 15, which we're going to study today, we're going to see that these chalices are prepared and given to seven angels. And these seven angels are wearing liturgical garments. So we're going back into the liturgy of the apocalypse here. And they're going to be delivering these bowls, these libation bowls, chalices, to Jerusalem. And every single time they do, because Jerusalem is now apostate, it's rejected the Messiah, these Eucharistic outpourings, if you want to call them that, are not received as blessings, they're received as curses. So remember that as we're moving through each one of these seven chalices. Now, let's begin at verse 1. Chapter 15, then I saw another sign in heaven. By the way, this is the third sign. Great and wonderful, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and wonderful are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who shall not fear and glorify your name, O Lord? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come to worship you, for your judgments have been revealed. End quote. So we're told here that the This is the great sign. It's the third sign. It's the end of God's wrath. And then appears a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we've seen this before, but I want to talk about it again. So the sea of glass is the crystal sea 
that we saw in Revelation chapter 4 that's out in front of God's throne. And it's a reference to Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, Moses sees a sapphire pavement in front of God, a sapphire pavement. Now, sapphire is blue, and pavement, you know what pavement is. So out in front of God in his throne is this blue pavement. And so what we learn in Revelation is is that this is actually a gigantic sea. It is the firmament that we read about in Genesis, and God sits enthroned above it. It's like he's looking down through the heavens, down onto us. And here, however, it says that this sea of glass is mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and its image and its number are standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands. So remember the 144,000 that we saw in the previous chapter? There they are standing beside the sea. Now this reminds us of the Red Sea. God pulled his people, led his people out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, and they stood on the other side. And then the sea came back together and it killed Pharaoh. It killed the Egyptians. Egypt symbolizes, by the way, bondage, slavery, sin, and the devil's dominion. It's a place of idolatry. And so God's power overcame Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And then the people of God stood on the edge of the sea and they rejoiced and they sang the song of Moses in Exodus. That's exactly what we see here in Revelation. So what we're seeing a exodus. The people of God have been led out of bondage. Now they are in freedom, and they sing the song of Moses. And then it says here in verse 3, they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, both. The song of Moses and the song of Jesus. This is notable because in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and in the book of Joshua, Moses who leads the people out of bondage, is succeeded by a man named Joshua. That's why the sixth book of the Bible is named Joshua. And in Greek, the name Joshua is Jesus. So we see Moses succeeded allegorically by Jesus. This is why we have the song of Moses, and then we have the song of Jesus, the song of the Lamb. Now, verse 5 begins. Oh, there's one more thing here. Uh, This reference here to a sea in the presence of God is derived from King Solomon when he re-consecrated, or not re, the first time consecrated the temple. So if we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we read this, and it will remind you what we just read in Revelation. Quote, Then Solomon stood before the altar of God in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze laver. What's a laver? It's a giant bathtub, a pool. Now Solomon had made a bronze laver, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and set in the midst of the court. And he stood on it, knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of God, and spread out his hands towards heaven. So Solomon is going to consecrate the temple of God. He builds this bronze pool. He stands on it. So here again we have the dedication of the altar administered by the son of David. 
and he's standing on the edge of this pool. Same imagery here in Revelation. The saints are standing with Moses and the Lamb at the edge of the pool, and they are praising God, and they are getting ready to dedicate a new temple. Why? Because the old temple in Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. The new temple is about to be built. What is the new temple? The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the new temple. It is the true body of Christ. So moving on here, verse 5 in chapter 15, quote, After this I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, And out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues, robed in pure, bright linen, and with golden sashes across their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended, end quote, and that's the end of chapter 15, a very short chapter in the book of Revelation, only eight verses. Okay, so then St. John looks. He sees all the saints and the Lamb standing at the edge of this giant pool, this sea of glass in heaven, and then he sees the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly tent, the heavenly temple opened, and out come seven angels. What's interesting here is the seven angels are dressed in Old Testament liturgical vestments. They're wearing the linen robes, the linen vestments, with the golden sash across their chest. This is how Old Testament priests dressed when they ministered in the temple. So we see now that the Old Testament priests have been displaced. They have rejected Christ. The high priest rejected Jesus and condemned him to crucifixion. He said, we have no king but Caesar. So he rejected the true king of Israel for the king of the Romans. And now these angels are coming out of the temple dressed like priests, and they're about to do their work. Then one of the four living creatures who we discussed before, I believe this is one the fourth living creature, the one that has the face of a man. He hands them these bowls. Now, scholars have debated what are these bowls. The bowls could be incense bowls, so thuribles, or they could just be normal bowls, or they could be chalices. Well, the Greek word used here refers to the same kind of libation bowls that are used in the Old Testament. Now, what's a libation bowl? A libation is where you take blood or wine— in a bowl or in a chalice, and it's poured out towards God. It's poured out as a sacrifice to God. And this is what's going on here. These bowls are libation bowls or libation cups. And so I actually favor those who translate this as either libation bowls or chalices. I think chalices are especially helpful for for those of us living in these days because we associate chalices as a sacramental cup. And definitely what we see here at the end of 15 and then into chapter 16 are sacramental cups. So in order to denote sacramental cups in the English language, I'm going to use the word chalice. So as you read, I don't know what translation you're using as you follow along with me. 
I'm using primarily the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, also known as the Ignatius Bible. And in that translation, it uses the word bowl. But in English, we think of bowl as like a cereal bowl or a soup bowl. We don't think of it as having sacramental or liturgical use. But we do think of chalices in that way. So I'm going to use the word chalice because that's what's being intended here in the Greek in chapter 15 and in chapter 16. Okay, so that's chapter 15. Y'all ready to move on to 16? Let's do it. Chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go out and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Or as we have learned in previous chapters, Go out and pour out on the land. Because whenever we see the earth, it means the land sacramentally. That is the promised land of the chosen people of God. And pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, as we move through these seven chalices and the seven plagues, you're going to notice that they mirror the plagues that were poured out on Egypt. And this makes sense because we just had the image of Moses having led the promised people out of Egypt and into safety. And so they're standing on the edge of this sea of redemption. And this sea, the sea of glass, of course, for us Christians, refers to baptism. The lavar in our churches is not a bronze one that's five cubits by five cubits that Solomon built. Instead, it is the baptismal font. This is the sea of glass that stands before the throne of God. The throne of God, by the way, is the altar in the Catholic Church and the tabernacle. The baptismal font is that sea of glass, and we emerge through that sea of glass and come out on the other side and stand on the edge of it when we are regenerated and born again through baptism, because baptism is the sacrament of faith in Christ. That is where our faith journey begins, is there at the Red Sea of baptism. So now these seven chalices come out, and each of these chalices will remind you of the ten plagues on Egypt. For those of you that have been listening to our Revelation podcast series, Catholic Apocalypse, these will also remind you of the seven trumpets that we heard back in chapter 8. So as we move through the seven chalices, I'm going to show how each one of these chalices relates to the ten plagues of Egypt and also to the seven trumpets that were blown back in chapter 8. The trumpets that were born in chapter 8, trumpets are signs of warning. When you blow a trumpet, that's warning you that something's about to happen. Here in chapter 16, they're actually happening full out. So we saw bad stuff happening with the seven trumpets. Those were just warning us of what was going to happen, the really bad stuff, with the seven chalices in chapter 16. So you're going to see them connected as we go. Okay, so in verse 2, the angel pours out the chalice upon the land. Let me read that for you. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and foul and evil sores came upon the men who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. I'll go on and read the rest of them. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a dead man and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the fountains of the water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, 
Just are you in these your judgments, you who are and were, O Holy One. For men have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is their due. Verse 7, And I heard the altar cry, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast in its kingdom and its darkness. Oh, I'm sorry, in its kingdom was in darkness. Men gnawed their tongue in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of kings from the east. And I saw issuing from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet three foul spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs. They go abroad to kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place which is called in Hebrew, Armageddon. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a great voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is finished. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as never been seen, as such as never been since men were on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered great Babylon to make her drain the cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, heavy as a talent, dropped on men from heaven, till men cursed God for the plague of the hell. So fearful was that plague. End quote. End of the chapter. So those are the seven plagues. Each of the seven angels poured out a bowl or a chalice, and it begins. So the first one was on the land, and it becomes sores. This will remind you of the sixth plague from the book of Exodus, chapter 9, where the boils or the sores appear on men. It also reminds us of the first trumpet in Revelation chapter 8. Here the trumpet affects the land and one-third of the earth. Here it's everywhere. In chapter 8 with the trumpet, it's only a third because it was a warning. The second angel pours out his chalice on the sea and it becomes blood. Now this reminds us, of course, of the first plague under Moses against Egypt where the Nile River, um, the waters become blood. This is in Exodus chapter 7. This corresponds, by the way, to the second trumpet in chapter 8 of Revelation, where one-third of the sea becomes blood. So here, all of the sea becomes blood. Back with the trumpet, it was only one-third. Why? Because with the trumpet, it was a warning. The third angel comes and pours his chalice out on the rivers and the springs, and they become blood. Again, this reminds us of the Nile becoming blood, and it harkens back to Revelation chapter 8, where the third trumpet of the third angel turns a third of the rivers and springs into bitterness. Why? Because the trumpet was a warning for this chalice, this third chalice. 
Then, as we normally see here in the book of Revelation, after a set of three, we have a little break here, and there's an angel of the water, an angel of the water. Who knows who this is? Um, I suspect it has something to do with the constellation Aquarius, as we talked about previously. I've also posted a blog post over at taylormarshall.com called The Four Constellations of the Book of Revelation. You need to be familiar with those four constellations. But the angel of the water says, Just are you in these judgments, you who are and who were, O Holy One. For men have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is their due, or in Greek, they are worthy of this. So instead of receiving the blood of Christ, which brings about salvation, they are drinking the blood of the saints who they've killed, the prophets, the martyrs. And this brings great condemnation upon them. Of course, Jerusalem, as Christ said, is the city that kills the prophets. All right, the fourth chalice is that of the sun. And it reminds us of the plague in Egypt of darkness. It's the ninth plague. Also, the trumpet, which uh, is puts out a third of the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars. But what's interesting about this one is it doesn't bring about darkness. Instead, it brings about even more light. It brings about heat that scorches and burns the people. The reason for this is that God has now removed his protective covering from Jerusalem. In Psalm 121, we read that the Lord God is the shade on your right hand. And we also read in Isaiah that the sun, the scorching heat, will no longer strike down the people of Israel. Even in Revelation itself, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, we read, And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is the center of the throne, shall be their shepherd. So this idea of removing the tent, removing the tabernacle, removing the shade, is a sign that God's presence, his sacramental presence, is no longer with them. So instead of darkness, they get something even worse. They get the scorching heat. They are burned. Fifth chalice is poured out upon the beast. And this sends the beast kingdom, it says, into darkness. So here we have darkness. So in the previous chalice, we had shade, the God shade removed so that they were scorched. And here we have the chalice poured out on the beast and his kingdom goes into darkness. Of course, this is a form of spiritual darkness. And the men nod on their tongue and cursed God for their pain and their sores, but did not repent of their deeds. So here the judgment is moving from the first, second, third, and fourth angels. Now on the fifth one, it's being directed straight to the beast. Now the sixth chalice is poured out on the Euphrates River, and it dries it up, making way for the kings of the east. And then it mentions these demon frogs. So let's read this again here. So the sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings from the east. 
And I saw issuing from the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet. So here's our trinity, satanic trinity we've been talking about. There's the dragon, who's the devil. Then there's the sea beast. And then there's the land beast, who's also called the false prophet. And out of each one of their mouths comes three frogs. So a frog from one, a frog from the second, a frog from the third. And these go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle in the great day of God the Almighty. And we're told that these three frogs are three demons that go out into the world. Of course, the frogs also remind us of the plague. Um, the frogs that come out of the river in the uh, second plague, I believe it is, in the book of Exodus. This also harkens to the trumpet, the sixth trumpet, where um, the army comes from the Euphrates River and kills one-third of mankind. It's in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. And then we read that there's a little bit of a break here. And it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. So here Christ interjects his voice. He says, I'm coming like a thief, a thief in the night. So he's like, don't give up. Don't be worried. The war is coming, but don't worry. Keep your garments clean. That's a reference to baptism, your baptismal white garment. And then in verse 16, it says, and they assembled at the place which is called Armageddon. Now, you've probably heard a lot about Armageddon. We usually use the word Armageddon to refer to the end of the world. However, here it says in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And Armageddon in Hebrew, Har means mount, and Megiddon refers to a place. This is Mount Megiddo. Mount Megiddo. It's a place. The problem is, is there is no mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo itself is an open plain, and this is where most of the major biblical battles happen, on this plain of Megiddo. So if that's the case, why is it called Mount Megiddo if Megiddo itself is a flat plain for battle? Well, there is a mountain near Megiddo, and this is perhaps what God is revealing in this portion of the book of Revelation. And you'll be glad to know, as Catholics, that mountain near the plain of Megiddo is none other than Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is the home place for the Carmelite religious order. It is uh, associated with the queenship of Our Lady, Our Lady's association with um, the Holy Land, with Israel, and with the brown scapular and everything that goes along with the Carmelite spirituality. So here the battle is done at, it seems, Mount Carmel. You'll remember also at uh, Fatima, Our Lady of Fatima, she, um, in the Miracle of the Sun, she also appeared there as Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And so it seems here that this battle is going to represent or recycle what has happened in the Old Testament at Mount Carmel, and that chiefly is the battle between the false prophets of Jezebel and Elijah. Elijah challenged 450 false prophets, prophets of Baal, in a contest at the altar on Mount Carmel to determine whose God was the true God. 
Was it the God of Israel that Elijah represented, or was it the false God of Baal who these false prophets represented? And of course, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice of Elijah and his God, the true God of Israel, was vindicated. Now, early in the book of Revelation, we've had reference to Jezebel and to false prophets. So this connection here with Mount Carmel is a very strong one. But Mount Carmel also has, and Megiddo itself, the plain, um, refers to the battles of Joshua against the pagan inhabitants of the Holy Land. It's also the place where the judges, I think that's the right word, a judges, the female judge, Deborah, defeated the kings of Canaan. Also, King Ahaziah, who was the evil grandson of King Ahab, died in Megiddo. So this location, Megiddo, is associated with the deaths of God's enemies, battles with God's enemies, and the victory or the vindication of God as the true God of Israel. Now remember, in the first century, Israel, through the high priest, rejected God by rejecting Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. They've rejected God once again, and so a battle is coming to Megiddo, just as it happens in the days of Joshua, in the days of Deborah, and in the days of Elijah. A war is coming, and God will once again be vindicated. This reference to Har Megiddo, or Armageddon, also um, is a reference to a prophecy by the prophet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, in chapter 12, prophesies this about Jesus Christ and Armageddon, or Megiddo. Quote, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. I'm going to pause there. Here, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out in Jerusalem, Catholic Pentecost, and they will look on him, that is God, whom they have pierced. This is a, a prophecy of the crucifixion, that God himself would be pierced. And they will mourn for him. I'm going back into the prophecy, Zechariah chapter 12, quote, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family. End quote. So here in Zechariah, it's told that God will be pierced, and the people will mourn, and there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like mourning in the plain of Megiddo. And in the next two chapters in Zechariah, God explains through the prophet Zechariah that Jerusalem is going to be punished, which is exactly what we've been seeing over and over here in the book of Revelation. Armies will come and destroy Jerusalem, which is exactly what's going to happen in the year A.D. 70. So Armageddon here is referring to this prophecy in Zechariah and in these historical events in the drama of redemption in Israel where the false prophets and the false kings are fighting the true prophets and the true kings. All right, so now we move on to the seventh angel and the seventh chalice. This chalice 
interestingly enough, is poured out on the air. It's poured out in the air and it causes a storm and hail and an earthquake. Uh, this, of course, re- uh, corresponds to the plague of Egypt of hail. This was the seventh plague in Egypt. And it hearkens to the seventh trumpet that we saw in Revelation chapter 11, where there was the voices and the storms and the earthquake and the hail that was leading up to the vision of the virginal mother of Christ who was clothed in the sun and standing on the moon. So we see the same kind of buildup here. But why is it that the chalice is poured on the air? We can find our answer if we turn in our Bibles to St. Paul. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, St. Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. The idea here is that Satan and his devils were cast down out of heaven, out of the celestial heaven, and therefore they have their abode in our atmosphere, in our air, of course, also on our earth. And then when they're condemned by Christ through exorcism, they are sent down into the pit of hell. But they do have a dominion in the air. And so finally, this last chalice is poured out, not just on the beast and not just on the false prophet, but on the air, because that is the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, who St. Paul identifies as Satan. And then we get a voice coming from the temple of heaven, from the throne. So now God is speaking. The seven chalices are poured out, and now God is going to say something very important. What does he say? It is finished. It is done. It's the same words that we hear Christ utter on the cross during the crucifixion. It is finished. So this is associating the pouring out or the ultimate destruction of Satan in the air with the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. And then there's loud flashing of lightning. There's loud noises, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as has never been seen since men were on earth. So great was that earthquake. So this earthquake is huge. It is gigantic. It's the greatest earthquake that ever did exist. Of course, this reminds us that there was an earthquake when Christ died. And this earthquake, what did it do? It brought about the rending of the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. It op- it really it undermined and destroyed initially the symbolism, the liturgical symbolism of the temple in Jerusalem. So there was a initial judgment against the temple of in Jerusalem, and now we hear a definitive judgment along with the earthquake. So, I mean, just think about this. It is finished, and then there's an earthquake here in Revelation chapter 16, and we know in the year AD 33, God himself on the cross said, it is finished, and there was an earthquake that broke down the temple in Jerusalem. I think if we go back to our preterism, which is what we talked about in our very first episode, you can see here these preterist connections and that God, through St. John, is making all of these connections for us in the first century with all the redemptive acts that he was performing for 
us. Now, verse 19 is awesome. And the reason I like verse 19 so much is because we've been debating all through this audio commentary in the book of Revelation, what is the great city? What is Babylon? Is it Jerusalem or is it Rome or something in the future? And I keep coming back to you and saying, listen, it is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the great city that's being judged by God. Jerusalem is the harlot, the whore of Babylon. Jerusalem is the unfaithful spouse to God. She was a virginal spouse, but she's turned to adultery and fornication, and now God is judging her. So it's Jerusalem. Well, in verse 19, we learn for sure that Jerusalem is this great city, is this great Babylon, because we read here, Quote, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered great Babylon to make her drain the cup of the fury of his wrath. End quote. So the great city is split into three parts, and it's distinguished, by the way, from the cities of the nations. So there's the great city, that's Jerusalem, and then there's the city of the Gentiles, the nations. And God remembered great Babylon. This is covenantal language. Whenever God remembers, God doesn't ever forget. But in the Bible, we see God remembering. And that means he's either going to bring about the reward that was wrapped up into the covenant, or he's going to bring about the punishment that was wrapped up in his covenant. So every covenant yields either a reward or a condemnation. Just as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the Eucharist, which is the sign of the new covenant, brings about reward, salvation, or condemnation, damnation. This, by the way, is why we Catholics, it's actually an act of love. We don't want non-Catholics, people who don't understand this covenantal sign, the seal, to receive the Eucharist unworthily because it will just hurt them. It could lead them into further condemnation. That's why we reserve the Eucharist only to Catholics in good standing who are not in mortal sin. It's actually the single most loving thing the Catholic Church could do for humanity, and that is to restrict and guard the Eucharist. But we also see here that the great city is divided into three parts. So what's going on here? Why the earthquake that takes the city and pushes it into three parts? Well, here is a reference to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. We've seen Ezekiel referred to over and over in this vision of the apocalypse. But in Ezekiel, there's a very strange thing that happens to the prophet Ezekiel. God actually asked Ezekiel to give himself a funny haircut. If you've never read Ezekiel, uh, I have to tell it to you. So Ezekiel was told that he needed to cut his hair with a sword So he has to take a, not scissors or a little knife, he has to take a sword, and he has to shave his head with the sword, that's not fun, and then he takes his hair, which is now on the ground, and he divides it into three clumps, and God gives him specific directions with what to do with each of the three clumps of hair. God says, quote, one third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city, You shall take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind you. Take also a few in number from them and bind them into the edges of your robe, and take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it 
a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. So Ezekiel takes some of his hair and he goes into the middle of the city of Jerusalem and he burns it. This symbolizes that part of Jerusalem is going to be burned. Then he takes another third, another clump of his hair, and he holds a sword and he hits the hair with his sword. And this signifies that a third of the city is going to be struck down by the sword. And then he takes another third and he throws it into the wind and lets it scatter. And this shows that a third of the city is going to be taken away out of the city into captivity. And then some of it he puts into the edges of his robe and some of it's in the fire. And that's going to spread this prophecy throughout all Israel. Then God says, Thus saith the Lord, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her, but she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands that surround her, for they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. So here it is. This is Jerusalem. So when God in the book of Revelation says that the city, after an earthquake, was divided into three parts, it's referring directly to this prophecy in Ezekiel where it says Jerusalem also will be divided into three parts. You know, it's interesting. If we go into this prophecy in Ezekiel, and by the way, this is all happening in Ezekiel chapter 5, God explains why he wanted Ezekiel to cut his hair off and divide it into three parts and how Jerusalem will be divided into three parts and destroyed. God gives a specific reason to Jerusalem. He says this, So as I live, live, declares the Lord, surely because you have defiled my temple with your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw, and my eye shall have no pity and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague and be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword. One third will scatter to every wind. I mean, there it is, Ezekiel chapter 15. Now, Christ came to Jerusalem, and what did he do? He went to the temple, and he said the same thing that God says here in Ezekiel, you have desecrated and defiled my temple. You have defiled my sanctuary. It was supposed to be a a house of prayer for all nations. You have turned it into a den of thieves. So Christ did the same thing. He came to the temple and he judged the temple. And now we see that the city of the temple, Jerusalem, will be divided into three parts and will be destroyed. And here he calls that city, put into three parts, the great city, the great Babylon. In verse 21, we read, Great hailstones weighing a talent dropped on men from heaven till men cursed God, for the plague of the hail was so fearful was that plague. So it ends, this chapter ends with the hailstones. And these hailstones weigh one talent. Now, a talent weighs 100 pounds. So these are gigantic hailstones. Of course, the hailstones remind us once again of the plagues of Egypt as we've been going all along here. Jerusalem has become the new Egypt. Jerusalem is now the place that rejects God. Jerusalem is now the place that kills the apostles and the prophets and the saints. Jerusalem is now the place of bondage, which is keeping people away from God by slavery to false laws created by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
And Christ is coming to liberate his people from this new Egypt. And so here it ends with the plague of hail. And the hail, like I said, weighs one talent, 100 pounds, and it comes down and crushes men. What's wonderful about this, and many scholars have have identified this connection with the hailstones weighing one talent with the uh, so-called hailstones or the stone rocks or missiles that were thrown in to the city of Jerusalem by the Romans right before the city fell. So you'll remember in the year A.D. 70, the Romans come to Jerusalem to destroy it, and they destroy the temple, they destroy the whole city, they kill everyone, the city is full of blood. It is the prophetic ending of Jerusalem. Now, Josephus is our Roman historian. We've talked about him, and I've written a lot about him over at taylormarshall.com. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes this about the destruction of Jerusalem, and I quote, The stone missiles weighed a talent and traveled two furlongs or more, and their impact not only on those who were hit first, but also on those behind him was enormous. At first the Jews kept watch for the stone, for it was white, and its approach was intimated to the eye by its shining surface, as well as to the ear by its whizzing sound. Watchmen posted on the towers gave the warning whenever the engine was fired, and the stone came hurtling toward them, shouting in their native tongue, The sun is coming! And here it's the sun, S-O-N, not the S-U-N. The sun is coming! Those in the line of fire made way and fell prone, and a precaution that resulted in the stone passing harmlessly and falling in the rear. To frustrate this, it occurred to the Romans to blacken the stones so that they could not be seen so easily beforehand. Then they hit their target and destroyed many with a single shot, end quote. Josephus here says that the Romans were hurling in rocks that weighed one talent. Think about this, the connection. The book of Revelation says the city is going to receive hailstones, each of which weighs one talent. I'm pretty sure it's physically impossible for hailstones to develop in the sky naturally that, that, that are that big. So there must be some allegorical meaning here in the book of Revelation. We have stones falling from the sky that weigh one talent. Josephus, who does not even know about the book of Revelation, he hasn't read the book of Revelation, he doesn't know about it, he says that the Romans were throwing stones weighing one talent, that they were white and that they were glistening and glowing. So this sounds like ice, you know, they're, they're stones, but they're falling on the city and they're destroying the Jewish people. And interestingly enough, the people, when they're being hammered by these so-called hailstones that weigh one talent, they're crying out in their native tongue, in Hebrew, Aramaic, Josephus says, the sun is coming. The sun is coming. The sun is coming. Sun here is S-O-N. What are they referring to? We don't know. But it seems that they recognize that these giant boulders weighing one talent, falling from the sky into their city, killing them, is a relation somehow to the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who comes on the clouds to judge the nations, and in this case, to judge Jerusalem. 
My brothers and sisters, this chapter, chapter 16 in Revelation, ends with this. Till men curse God for the plague of the hailstones, so fearful was that plague. End quote. So that ends this chapter. The next chapter, chapter 17, that we'll do next week, is the great whore of Babylon, who is this city, Jerusalem. She has been receiving these seven chalices, these seven plagues from seven liturgical angels, and the hailstones are falling from the Romans, and now we're going to see the great whore of Babylon, Jerusalem, and the great sea beast, Rome, and their relationship, their interaction, and ultimately the beast turning on the woman and destroying her. I think you can see as we're moving along here that our preterist interpretation, that is to see the book of Revelation as having its fulfillment in the first century, and this does not take away any future fulfillment. I do believe, and the Catholic Church holds, that the book of Revelation will have future fulfillment. It will be even worse than what we're reading about here in the book of Revelation. But the events surrounding the death of Christ in AD 33 and then culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 are a type of what will happen in the future on a global, worldwide scale. So there it is, Revelation chapter 16. I'd like to close with a bit of practical application, and it goes back to the Eucharist, as we talked about in the beginning of our podcast. You can see yourself as a city, you, your soul, your anima in Latin, it's a feminine word in Latin, your soul is like the bride of Christ. Many of the mystics have talked about this. Many of the Carmelites, speaking about Carmel, have talked about the soul as the spouse of Christ. And Christ comes to visit us. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and our souls are his bride. And so Christ comes to visit us. And he comes with those chalices, with his angels. His angels are the priests, are the bishops of the new covenant, and they carry to us the Eucharist. And Christ is asking us, are we a faithful city? Is our temple, our body, is it pure or is it a den of thieves? Have we turned our temple into something that corresponds with the beast? Have we turned our souls into harlots? And the good news is, is if we have, he is ready to forgive us. He sends us sermons and warnings and podcasts and friends and Bible readings and books to turn us back. Remember, seven trumpets happen before the seven plagues. The seven trumpets are the warnings. The plagues are the end. So your life is not over yet. The plagues, or we might call hell, has not approached you yet. Instead, you're having trumpets all throughout your life. And so Christ is saying, hey, I'm sending out my ministers, my priests, my preachers, my teachers to give warnings, to teach you in the right way, to turn your soul into something beautiful, to make your temple into a glorious shrine of my presence. And so we all have free will and we all have the grace of God working in us. And so we conform to that grace and say, Jesus, I'm sorry that I've turned my temple into a den of thieves. I'm sorry that my soul is not a pure virginal bride, but I know you can make me clean again. I know you can wash me through your most precious blood. You are the Lamb of God, and I want to be a part of you. And if we do that, we become part of the new city, the new temple, 
and we will be saved. We will be preserved from these plagues and from judgment. And that's the message of the gospel. God loves you. He has sent Jesus Christ to be your Redeemer and to be your Savior, and he's giving you chance after chance to come into a loving relationship with him. And thanks be to God, we're Catholics, and we can go to the sacrament of reconciliation. We can go to confession, and we confess our sins to Christ through that priest, and then there in the confession we receive absolution, the taking away, the washing away of all of our sins, so that we can stand like the 144,000, pure in his sight, we can be his army, and we can go out and change the world. So thanks for listening. I'm going to close up here like I normally do with a shout out. I know many of you have been missing the Proverbs of the Week and the Tips of the Week, and I apologize for that. You know, we've been doing these podcasts on the Book of Revelation. They've been running about an hour almost every time, and because of that, we don't often have time to do the Latin Word of the Week and the Proverb of the Week and all the old favorites that we used to do. Also, to be honest with you, just doing all the show prep and all the research and all the prayer and studying for these podcasts on the Revelation, it's like three or four times the work, and so I don't have the time to do all the Latin words and the and the tips of the week and all that, so I do apologize. But when we finish this series on the book of Revelation, I will go back to all of those same features before, so don't worry. And if I do have time in the future, I might sprinkle in a few of those um, as we move along. But before we close out, I'm going to give a shout-out. Um, every week, I like to thank those who leave reviews of the podcast and leave feedback, and there are quite a few of you in the last week. So I want to give a shout-out this week to Sleeper987. I assume that's not your true name, Sleeper987, but he writes, Finally, a study of the book of Revelation that makes sense. No microchips, no helicopters, no attack on common sense. Dr. Taylor gets a 5-plus rating for this series. I sincerely hope that this is the start of many Bible studies to be done in the future by this gifted speaker and teacher. Well done. Well, Sleeper, thank you so much for that awesome review and for the five stars. I truly appreciate that. I also want to give a shout-out this week to Starbuck444, M. Fritzel. Thank you for your five-star review. I enjoyed reading that. Colorado. Thank you also for your long and helpful review and for the five stars. I really appreciate reading your review. Then we also have Mom of Three Sweethearts. She writes, uh, he is so amazing to listen to. He has such terrific ideas and tips, and he's funny too. So glad I found him. May God bless you and your family always, Taylor. Keep up the good work. So thank you, Mom of Three Sweethearts. Also, shout out goes to Mark Zangetti. Thank you for the five-star review. Catholic Aviator, thank you also again for your review and the five stars. And then also Pro Deo et Patria. This guy must be a friend of mine because he's got the Latin kicking right there, which means for God and for country. And he is a, looks like a graduate student. He writes, Dr. Marshall offers an intellectually stimulating, theologically invigorating, and refreshingly humorous podcast on the faith. If you're looking for a way to incorporate everyday life with practical ways of virtue and sanctity, this is the podcast for you. Also, Dr. Marshall, I would like to thank you in particular for your podcast on Our Lady and the Theology of the Apocalypse on her. I think it has solidified my interest in continuing my theological studies and graduate work with a focus in Mariology. Thank you so much, and God love you and your family. So thank you for that, and God bless you in your work for Mariology and your studies on 
Our Lady. And I would like to encourage all of you listening to please leave a review. It helps other people find this podcast in iTunes. So in order to do it, you go over to iTunes and you go into the iTunes store. This is a free podcast, but for some reason you have to go into the iTunes store and you search in the search bar, Taylor Marshall Catholic Show, and you'll see my podcast come up there and you click on ratings and review and you can leave a rating one star to five star, however many stars you think this show is worthy. Give it that many stars. And then you can leave a note there and I will give you a shout out in next week's podcast. I'll read out your name and maybe I'll choose your review as one to read here on the show. And by the way, there are currently 399 positive reviews over at the Taylor Marshall Catholic Show on iTunes. And so whoever is the next one, the 400th Raider, I will definitely uh, feature you and give you the 400th shout out. So um, if you would go over to Taylor Marshall Show on iTunes and leave that review. If you're number 400, I will definitely give you props and a shout out in next week's podcast. Also, just a reminder, the new St. Thomas Institute fall enrollment is open. We've made a few more spots open. So if you want to take classes with me every single week uh, throughout the year and earn certificates in Catholic philosophy, a certificate in Catholic theology, a certificate in Catholic apologetics, please head over to NewStThomas.com and do it this week because we will be closing enrollment and it will go back to a waiting list. So if you want to join and start taking classes, this is the week to do it. Um, I would encourage you just to give it a shot. You can sign up, and if you don't like it, we have a full 21-day money-back guarantee. So if you want your tuition back for the first month, just let us know. We'll give it back to you. But that way you can get in there and start taking some classes, see if it's a right fit for you. If it is, awesome. You can continue doing it however long you like. And if it's not, no worries. You know, Just quit, and we'll give you a refund, and it's no problem. Uh, We want you to grow in your Catholic faith. I think this is the best possible way for people who are busy and can't do full-time graduate work or college studies in Catholic theology. So if you want to study Catholic theology, just give it a shot. There's no risk. Just go to NewStThomas.com this week, sign up, and give it a shot. If you don't like it, no worries. No money lost. You're fine. So thanks again for listening. Next week, we're going to get into Revelation chapter 17, like I said the great whore of Babylon, and we're going to see her relationship with the beast unfold. This is where things get really interesting in the book of Revelation. And I think now that we've established uh, the great city as Jerusalem, and we've seen the plagues being poured out upon her, we're really starting to get a sense for the first century dimensions of what's going on in the decades following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So until next time, Remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, said that you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. was brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the new St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newstthomas.com. That's newstthomas.com.